welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast, a partner of the ACCP Critical Care PRN and a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. And wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. And this is the Trial of the Week, where I review a landmark article in critical care and emergency medicine that was published this month in Medical History. And we are very, very lucky today, friends, because I am joined by none other than the 2023 Living Legend Award winner, icon in critical care and pharmacy, Rob McLaren. And we are covering one of the most famous trials in critical care history, the Rivers Early Goal Directed Therapy Trial. So we set the scene. We review the care of sepsis prior to this study. What was it expect? What the, was the expected mortality? Was there any bundled care or was this a new initiative? Then we do a deep dive into the feature trial of the week to discuss findings, what were implications and considerations from this famous trial before getting to where are we now, right? What is the role of early girl directed therapy in sepsis care? Are there components we still recommend? What happened? And much, much more. Uh, this November trial of the week is a true must listen for any involved in the care of the critically ill. So let's get going. We're joined by a very special guest today, the uh, 2023 uh, Pharmacy Two Dose Living Legend Award winner. Rob McLaren. Now, Rob is a critical care pharmacist uh, and a professor at the University of Colorado Skag School of Pharmacy. Uh, Rob, so glad you could join today. How are you doing out there? Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm doing well. I think this is going to be really fun because for the listeners, for full transparency, I had asked Rob to do another trial. He said, no, I want something that's a little more controversial. So not many better than the famous Rivers Early Gold Directed Therapy in Sepsis Trial. How do we do on the, on the controversial scale there? I think we at least hit an 8, 8.5, and we'll bring it up to a 10 pretty quickly. <laughs> so... Um, as we talk about sepsis, right, our kind of like, quote unquote, governing by the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines. So when we're trying to put into perspective when this trial happened in the history of our sepsis care, what was the first iteration of those surviving sepsis campaign guidelines? Like what guidance did we have for our management in like the late 90s, early 2000s? Yeah, great question. So really, if we go back to the 90s, we didn't have a whole lot of guidance Back in the early 90s, 91, we actually had the first definitions of sepsis, severe sepsis, SERS, et cetera, et cetera. But we didn't have any real guidelines until 2004 when the first surviving sepsis campaign guidelines were published. So this article came out a little bit before that those first guidelines were published. So uh, in some ways it should have incorporated this, this publication, but it did not. So ESICM, in addition to 10 other organizations, got together, formulated the guidelines. Um, keep in mind, too, this study was being published at a time when a lot of different sepsis-related studies were going on. So we had at that time prowess, which for our younger folks was activated protein C. Zygris, yeah. Um, Zygris, exactly. We had an ANE study with steroids coming out. Um, we had some renal dose dopamine coming out and saying that doesn't work from the ANZIC group. So there were a lot of studies coming out in the early 2000s. This is just one of them. So it's time and ripe to have some guidelines being published. 
Now, one of the one of the other kind of big um, questions, or I guess you could say critiques, is the mortality rate. Now, prior to this early goal directed therapy study, what was the expected mortality in patients with septic shock? What was like our benchmark? What did other studies show prior to this one? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I actually had to go back and look at this myself because uh, you know I'm, I'm getting old, but uh, so I can't always remember some of the literature from the '90s, but. You know, I actually looked at a study. It was a systematic review from uh, Jean-Louis Vincent, published in 99, that he looked at all studies, 131, up through 1997. If you look at septic shock alone in those studies, again, 131 studies, the mortality rate was 49.7%. So it's actually higher than what we would have anticipated and certainly higher than what we see now. And so as we go through Manny Rivers' study, we'll see that the standard therapy, the mortality rate was uh, 40, 46% in that neighborhood, so pretty high. Yeah, and the, the, the discussion of the, of the actual um, Rivers' study itself uh, talks about, you know, references a, a Chinese study that has a mortality rate in the 70s. Uh, and if you if you try to pull that study, FYI, it's in Chinese. So I was unable to read it. We're at a certain point. The mortality was just much higher than right than it is now. You know the studies that we're seeing today, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think part of it might have been just lack of recognition too. But uh, so earlier treatment, we know, and that's one of the results of this study, Manny Rivers' study, is that we get treatment fast, mortality goes down. But uh, you know, I can barely speak English, so I'm not going to go try and pull that article. And, you know, this is um, the use of bundled care. And I joked when um, the results of the Interact 3 trial came out that I think bundles might be back. Um, You know, everything, it's like fashion, whatever's old is new again. But um, was this concept used in other disease states or specialties, you know, prior prior to this one in sepsis in the early 2000s? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I can't think of anything that was specifically this grandiose for bundled care. I think, you know, the, before the days of cath labs, when we used to use TPA or at least clot busters for MIs, there might have been more of a bundled care approach to, in terms of early recognition in the ED, get the patients to, to thrombolysis as fast as possible. But I don't think there was truly something, and there certainly wasn't anything in the world of sepsis. The, the only other thing that came to mind, I'm not necessarily sure that it's actually even bundled care, but probably just early recognition is that golden hour in trauma that they, yeah. that they talk about. So kind of that early, but it's not, it's kind of an offshoot of that almost. So um, kind of revolutionary of its sense. So let's get, we're going to get into the trial of the week here because there's going to be so much to talk about afterwards and figure out where we've gone from here. So uh, for the listeners, I'll kind of go over some of the background, some of that methodology, um, and then Rob will come in, fill in any gaps, um, things that he wants to highlight, um, and then ultimately what this trial found. So uh, early goal-directed therapy in the treatment of severe sepsis and septic shock uh, published this month, specifically November 9th, 2001, in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, cited by over 7,000 other published articles, which is just wild because it shows that kind of at the top of the New England Journal website. So single-center prospective randomized clinical trial takes place in a Michigan emergency department single-center, and authors claim, FYI, that it's partially blinded. Not sure that's a thing. Put a pin in that. So inclusion criteria, at least two out of four SERS criteria, and right, you either had a, a low systolic blood pressure, uh, less than 90 after a fluid challenge, or your lactate was greater than 
four. Uh, some key exclusion criteria, it was essentially you were presenting concomitantly with another acute critical care disease state, right? You were seizing, you were status admaticus, you had an ACS, GI bleed, what have you, right? So other things uh, were happening other than just your, your sepsis or things that could mimic right now that we know uh, the mimics of the SERS criteria. So uh, patients were randomized, of course, to an early goal-directed therapy arm or to standard therapy, the control arms. Patients were treated in the ED for at least six hours, then admitted. So the early goal-directed therapy arm, right, consisted of treatments and goals. We'll kind of go through briefly this algorithm, but this is probably one of the most famous algorithms, this, this picture, probably one of the most clipped, like, arts in probably 20 years or so from, from yep. this to when we talk about the arise process and promise. So, uh, 500 ML crystalloid bolus. If your CVP, uh, for a goal CVP between eight to 12, uh, vasopressors to keep your map above 65 vasodilators. If you have an elevated map to bring that down to less than 90, uh, a uh, packed red blood cell transfusion for to uh, maintain a hematocrit greater than thirty, greater than or equal to thirty percent, and an inotrope specific dobutamine for a goal central venous oxygen saturation greater than seventy percent. My guess is too. Uh, 10, 15 years ago, everyone could cite this from memory, especially if you practice in a medical ICU and things. Right? Rob, could you do that from, from memory? Absolutely. I could still do it from memory. <laughs> and, and to be honest with you, this was so famous, it made ED the yep. show. Yep. <laughs> it, was, it was part of the show. It was actually quoted. Oh, so um, primary outcome in hospital mortality, uh, 263 patients enrolled. So March 97 to March 2000. So I wanted to set the scene, right? That like, you know, this is essentially, we're close to 30, you know, 25 years away from when they were enrolling in here. Uh, baseline characteristics, well-balanced, only big difference. Patients in the control arm were in the ED for a significantly shorter period of time. Uh, average lactate was seven. Pneumonia, most common source of sepsis. About 50% of patients in septic shock and 90% of patients received antibiotics in the first six hours. So uh, there, there's so many things we can highlight or talk about. Is there anything else that you that you want to talk about from like the methodology or patient criteria or anything before you kind of highlight what this study ultimately found? No, I think you hit the high points. I mean, I think from a critique limitation standpoint, you know, obviously it's primarily done in the emergency room or at least initiated in the emergency room, a single center. I will argue it's not blinded. There's no such thing as a pseudo blinding <laughs> yeah, study. I agree. Um, you know, the fact that the standard therapy spent a little bit shorter time in the ED, went to the ICU faster, automatically tells you that it probably wasn't blinded from that standpoint. Um, we'll talk a little bit about the conflict of interest or potential conflict of interest that Manny Rivers had with one of the, the devices. Um, you know, I will say if you look at some of the baseline characteristics, I know this is getting into the results, but, uh, you know, the groups uh, had a pretty high map going into this 75, uh, and the early girl directed therapy went all the way up to nineties within three hours. So, you know, they might've needed those vasodilators, who knows, um, yet, if you look at SCVO2, central venous oxygen saturations, they're about 50%, 49%. So it's a little bit of discoordinate information because one would expect with a high map like that, that their SCVO2s would actually be okay. Their lactate's maybe not as bad as they are, that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, that's kind of an interesting sort of uh, analysis. The other thing I'll say for those of the people who are trying to implement this we don't really know what crystalloid they use, what presser. We assume it's norepi. We assume it's normal saline. But, uh, you know, those are just some minor critiques. Yeah, there's no 
if if you're looking at this for the first time, welcome. Um, but there's no supplementary <laughs> appendix, right? And in no. today's today's world, where the big trials have like four things you have to download to be able to figure out everything. There's no other, that's all this is. So that's, I, I like that you pointed out, if you're looking for more information, it's not out there. Uh, what's in that, nope. that PDF is what we have uh, published. I've spoken to Manny about this and he said they use norepinephrine in normal sailing, but you know, that's a hearsay way back when. Trust, but verify, right? Exactly. So what did, what did, uh, what did Manny Rivers and his team find ultimately in this, in this trial? Sure. So, I mean, the primary outcome is hospital mortality. And, and in the standard of therapy, 46.5%. In the, in the early goal-directed therapy, 30.5%. So that mortality was consistent across severity of illness in terms of types of, of, of sepsis, whether it be severe, septic shock, et cetera, et cetera. It was also maintained all the way up to 60 days. In fact, I think the difference was actually more like 20%. Um, the in terms of therapies, uh, most of the therapies, as you can imagine, things like getting uh, fluid was about a liter and a half greater in the first six hours with early goal directed therapy, whereas it was even or equal over the course of 72 hours, i.e., Patients who got early goal-directed therapy were more likely to get more fluids in the first six hours. Not surprising. They're aiming for that CVP of 8 to 12. Um, you know, they were more likely to get blood transfusions, nearly two-thirds versus about 20%. They were more likely to get inotropes, roughly 13%. So, um, you know, all these therapies that were, as part of the bundle, uh, obviously were used. Um the downstream effects, too, were fewer patients were on mechanical ventilator at 72 hours if they got early goal-directed therapy. Now, in terms of other outcomes, um, you know, they did look at things like multi-organ failure. They did look at things like Apache and SAPS-2 scores. Those all improved over the course of 72 hours to a greater extent with early goal-directed therapy. Um, there was no real other clinical benefit. Patients didn't necessarily... Um, stay any shorter period of time, although those that did survive stayed shorter in the hospital, but uh, there was no change in resource utilization, et cetera, et cetera. So it was primarily a mortality benefit. But when you think of, um, you know, we'll, we'll talk here about the limitations, but the sheer reduction in mortality of this study in terms of critical care medicine there are a few that have shown where an intervention has shown that big of a, you know, something that we can actually do an intervention, maybe not like surgical, but things that we can actually give, you know, medicine or product wise and things showing that big of a reduction. Correct. Correct. And think about this at the time too, right? This is early 2000s. We have Zygris coming out, prowess study showing a 6% absolute reduction. That changed the way we treated patients, at least for a little bit of time. Uh, no surprise, 16% difference absolutely changed the way we treated patients. And this is just based on one study of 265 patients or so. So very small study to change therapy, whereas prowess had about 17, 1800 patients that changed therapy. There's other studies at the same time, right? You know, that all these things were happening at the same time. So it was kind of this uh, tipping point for how we treat patients in sepsis at the time. So, you know, I, we're going to probably talk about some of the limitations now Monday morning quarterbacking, but we're just going to reemphasize how, how famous of a study this was, how much it truly changed practice. And, and even though we're going to talk about some of the limitations, right, it was the basis for what we do now. We, we, you know, we'll talk about it. Right. But, but a lot of these things of how we treat now came from this. So like, um, 
there's no way Manny Rivers is listening, but if if they if he is, uh, FYI, like we, um, you know, we're just trying to uh, talk about th- through the evidence and things, highlight some of these things, but we definitely want to, you know, show respect. This is such an awesome study, innovative at the time, of course. Um, I, I have heard people say this is still the landmark study as it relates to critical care medicine. And think about that for a minute, right? All the different studies we have, and this is one study from one center. And people are calling this the landmark study. So, um, and I, I would say that's, uh, it's probably in the top 10. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's a few that come to mind, but when you think about the, the staying power of this one, name ones that were from, from 2001 or earlier that still make that list. And that's what makes this even more impressive. Absolutely. I agree. So um, you're a researcher. Uh, we've had the chance to highlight some of your research publications on multiple previous episodes. So, you know, we always like to point out things for a listener to keep in mind. So when you kind of go through this now, right, as someone who does trial designs and things, what what are pieces of these that stand out as potentially confounders, things that that now we might want to reevaluate and we might design differently? Well, I mean, obviously, the one issue is single center. Um, that would be one issue. Um, and, and repeat studies, as we'll discuss, you know, have been multi-center um, international studies that have shown, well, we'll talk about what they show, but no real benefit to, to early goal-directed therapy. Yeah. Um, I think the other big one is, and the question that everyone had was, do we need all four of these concepts yes. in, in early goal-directed therapy, or is there one magic bullet that these patients benefit from? Um, you know, and then I think obviously the mortality rates and are they real 46 down to to 30% is, is a huge difference. Um, and you know, when you say, can you name any other study? I mean, proning maybe an ARDS and we have questions whether that was real. Right. So, um, you know, anything that has these big differences of more than 10%, especially at a single center study with small number of patients, you know, we automatically question those. So, um, you know, it, it, the therapies, you know, it's no surprise that therapies were different up front. Um, I think we would question a little bit, you know, mentioned in your in your intro that um, it, within six hours, there were 10% of patients that did not get antibiotics. Think about that for a minute. 10% of patients did not get antibiotics in the first six hours. That to me is a huge issue, right? Um, does it change the results? Maybe not, but we know that for every hour, mortality goes up four or five percent. So uh, that's a huge issue from a practice standpoint. Yeah, the reduction mortality, despite the acuresis being a multi-center trial, that's the other one my mind goes to. The crazy reduction in mortality with cisatricurium and ARDS, um, with obviously the subsequent studies uh, not showing the same reduction. Um, this Correct. kind of following a similar pathway. So that's a good point you make of, you know, when something shows... A, a single study showing a large reduction in mortality, you, your, your red flags are up, right? You've, you've, uh, you've been burned long enough is what I'm hearing. Yeah. And keep, keep in mind that this is a time in the nineties, we had all these studies coming up out about trying to block, you know, IL six or tumor necrosis factor, right? These were antagonists or, or abs that were whatever they were, right. Trying to block them. And, you know, they were aiming for a four or 5% difference and couldn't show it. So now we have a 16% difference, huge, right? So it, it was really mind boggling at the time. So you hit on the bundle itself and then the individual components. 
at the time, was there anything to, were we able to dis, like to see if one piece of that algorithm was driving these results? Was one component more essential to another? Well, I, I mean, I think we all had thoughts as to which one component or maybe two components were driving it. I, there wasn't actually any great data saying, you know, was it the fluids? Was it the inotropes? Um, you know, I, I will say, I think most people thought it was the early recognition combined with early fluid administration. And that, as you will, you know, see is still part of the, the surviving sepsis campaign, right? We still are early recognition, get fluids into patients. Um, you know, we now know that, you know, transfusion to a hematocrit of 30 is not beneficial. You know, these, yeah. th that data was also in discordance with, with the trick study, right? So, you know, we knew transfusing patients past a hemoglobin of seven really didn't make any sense. And here we are really transfusing to a hemoglobin of 10, if you convert hematocrit of 30. Um, so that was a little bit different. Uh, using inotropes to drive up cardiac output, you know, these were studies in the 80s that were done where you're trying to do these hyperdynamic, superdynamic cardiac outputs, and these patients, no benefit. In fact, in the elderly, they might have been increased mortality. So there was a lot of speculation about which one might have helped, and then there was speculation about whether we might have been doing harm with some of these, these therapies. So, um, you know, I think what we now know is probably the early recognition of fluids that were the most beneficial. Yeah, it's, you know, the other thing that stood out to me is, right, keeping, if your map maintains low, those vasopressors, right? Um, yeah. And the the whole bundle was essentially, it looks like it was trying to emphasize, improve, increase oxygen delivery. And that's essentially Correct. what it feels like that was like the main target of this whole bundle. Yeah, absolutely. If you look at the components of oxygen delivery, you know, hemoglobin, um, oxygen saturation, and cardiac output, right? That's what that's what we're doing here in terms of getting SCVO2 above 70%. Um, you know, that was a whole controversial issue too, right? I mean, I'm sure if you were like my ICU or my ED, all of a sudden you're inserting these catheters to get SCVO2 above 70%. Um, you know, and, and that almost mandates someone comes to the ICU because you're probably going to end up using an inotrope or a presser to get that up there, right? So, um, you know, some ways resource allocation actually may have increased as a result of the study, although that study, the study did not show that, but, um, you know, we may have actually increased resource allocation initially. Um, so it, it is an interesting sort of concept. Uh, I, I, like I said, I, I would say that uh, fluids and earlier, early detection are probably the main things. Yeah, let's, so you kind of uh, hinted at this for a second. For for those who may be less familiar, because this isn't like an appendix in the article, what is, quote unquote, the controversy regarding Dr. Rivers and Edwards Life Sciences and, and how or should it impact our interpretation of these results? Yeah, you know, it's, it's very interesting because, you know, I don't, I'll be 100% honest, I don't know exactly what the conflict and or controversy is. I know this, I know that, uh, after he published this, there was an edit editorial written to the Wall Street Journal that essentially uh, suggested that he was receiving finances from the makers of the SCVO2 catheter. Um, I think it was Edwards Life Sciences. And uh, he was, now I should also say, I do not believe the study was sponsored by Edwards Life Sciences, but, um, you know, supposedly he was receiving some payment or endorsement from them. Uh, my understanding is that his institution wrote a rebuttal saying that he did not receive any, any financial gain until after the study was published. 
Um, but it was to the tune of $450,000 my understanding. So a substantial amount. Now, the other interesting point is the surviving sepsis campaign, the original versions, in fact, the original two or three versions were sponsored or supported by Edwards Life Sciences. So mm. uh, in addition to Eli Lilly, who were the makers of Zygris at the time. So again, two big studies coming out, the two sponsors uh, of the guidelines, both guidelines, uh, certainly, or all guidelines certainly suggesting that both therapies, you know, activated protein C and early goal-directed therapy with an SCVO2 is, is uh, highly recommended or at least suggested. So, you know, that, that's the main controversy. Yeah, it's, I encourage, so there's uh, the, the rebuttal from the hospital. You can Google, it's very easily available and it's a mm-hmm. seven page rebuttal. There's like 30 references and they try to pick apart. I, I always think, right, probably somewhere in the middle is where it lies. Whenever I see any of like people yeah. saying he, he absolutely did it and he never did it, probably something different, but just something to keep in mind of, of when, we think of conflicts of interest now and how the guidelines make a point to not have anybody with conflicts of interest. They include it in like their intros and things. And so pointing out just the question of, uh, of it, I think in today's um, guideline development and processes just would be out of the norm. And, and Nick, I think you bring up a good point. You know, we're talking about a different era um when conflict of interest actually was more accepted i hate to say it it was um you know we now live in a in a time when you know there is no say we don't want conflict of interest whereas i would have argued back then that the experts probably had conflict of interest most experts um i remember one expert uh presenting at SCCM and having three slides of conflict of interest. And he basically saying, if I do not have a conflict of interest with you, I would like to have one. So that's, that's the era we, we used to live in. Right. So I have to believe that the study itself was not conflicted. However, afterwards, Manny, Dr. Rivers was probably receiving some support and not maybe fully disclosing that support as he was speaking about the benefits of early goal directed therapy. So um, you know, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Yep. Uh, yep. I believe the study is still valid. I don't, I Completely don't necessarily, uh, you know, throw the study away because there might've been a conflict of interest. Uh, you know, I think it's still a valid study. And I just wanted to highlight it because I think there may be some people that hear conflict of interest and may just want to write it off. And that's the, like, mm, maybe don't do that. Uh, let's look at the individual components of that bundle and let's kind of, we'll kind of go through. So Rob CVP, are we targeting 8 to 12 anymore? What are we doing with CVP and fluid administration we, 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 in we general? We are not targeting 8 to 12. We are giving fluid administration to a map of 65 or presser administration to a map of 65 or urine output, some sort of clinical outcome. Yep. Um, I would also argue that maybe we're using some other monitoring techniques, lactates going down, capillary reperfusion, uh, maybe IVC collapsibility if you're doing things of that nature, right? Um, we're a little more uh, pragmatic, I guess, more, a little more practical in our way that we're doing things. It's not a thou must get a CVP of 8 to 12. I mean, the literature says if you're going to get, if you're going to try to target a CVP of eight to 12, you might as well just get a quarter out and say, if it's tails, I'm going to give fluid. And if it's heads, I'm not, because yep. it's about, a, yep. it's about 50% accurate in those reviews and things published on it. I would agree. I would agree. And I think, you know, we're doing uh, things like passive leg raises to see if patients even need fluid. Right. So, um, you know, I would say we're a little more, uh, 
like I said, a little more, I don't want to say evidence-based, but we're just, we're just more practical when it comes yep. to fluid administration. And I will say, I think this study highlighted the importance of fluid administration and really brought forth many studies that, that downstream effect, whether it be balanced solutions versus normal saline or, or passive leg raise as a measurement or what's the outcome, right? So I think yep. this study was the first. It was the, the father figure, the grandfather figure of the, of the lineage of fluid administration and sepsis, right? So we, we talked about the hematocrit, right? We're not targeting 30%. And when you look in even some of the previous iterations of the sepsis campaign guidelines, like maybe, you know, 04, 08, they even mentioned that there's low compliance with some of these bundles um, and specifically that hematocrit. So you pointed out, right, the um, famous tricks trial looking at um, PRBCs in the critically ill. Uh, what about SCVO2 versus lactate now? Uh, yeah, SCVO2 is no longer there. Um, we don't worry about it. Um, I think the only time we ever get it is if someone's not responding to everything we're doing and we're worried about a cardiac component maybe or cardiac output component. That's really the only time I see it ever being ordered. Um, sort of as a, someone's refractory shock, we don't know why. Let's see what's going on. Lactate is recommended. Um, we'd like to see a trend down in lactate. So surviving sepsis campaign, I believe, says get a lactate in the first three hours. Ideally, get a, a, another one down the road and make sure it's coming down. And there is good correlation with lactate and mortality across all ICU patients, not just sepsis. So uh, it would make sense if lactate's coming down that we're resuscitating these patients. Now, in Manny River's study, lactate stays pretty high for a long period of time. So it's not surprising that mortality is pretty darn high in the, in the, in the standard of therapy group. Yeah, that's a really good point because they, when they were enrolled, their lactate was, you know, around seven and then it stayed four. it's at, you know, five, six, even yep. four at 72 hours. So, um, yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. Something I hadn't necessarily it's, thought of. It's really high. And, and again, I'll point it out that, uh, when one looks at central venous oxygen saturation, again, over those time periods in that study, they, they, you know, in the, in the early goal-directed therapy, it comes up to 70%, but in the, in the standard of therapy, it stays below 70% all the way through, I think, 72 hours. So it's, it's uh, you know, one has to wonder what they were doing with their treatment there if they're trying to get SCVO2s above 70, but that was, again, in the early goal-directed therapy. But, you know, we don't, we don't see those types. And even in the more modern studies, you don't see SCVO2 below 70%, at least as a mean, maybe in the occasional patient, but not as a mean. When you just don't see that reported as much, like it was reported yeah, exactly. a whole lot of the sepsis studies after this, because we were just using them more probably. Yep, exactly. Exactly. So have these positive findings from, you know, looking at early goal directed therapy in sepsis, had they been duplicated? Like have, has this research group done another study or has any other groups, you know, found any, any sort of thing, even remotely similar to the, to the big findings we found here? Yeah, so I don't know if Manny Rivers has done anything more. I don't think he ever did. I think he went on a, um, you know, a little bit of a discussion uh, promoting it, and mm -hmm. rightfully so. I understand that. There have been um, three large multi-center studies, one done in the U.K., one done in, in uh, Australia by the ANZICS group, and one done in, in the U.S. So, you know, the Arise, the Process, and uh, Blake promise. on the third one. But promise, thank you. Um, all three of them are about 1,200 to 1,600 patients, so they're a lot larger. I'm trying to repeat early goal-directed therapy versus standard of therapy. 
So in your opinion, right, though, the three kind of think of them as the three big sepsis studies at this point feels like weird. You can't really talk about one without the other, all, all three no, of them, can. right? Does it? <laughs> and they all came out about the same time too. I think one was a little bit yep. earlier and the other two were almost like, like back to back months or something. Yeah. I think though, I think that was about, I think those are grand rounds for about 18 months, just pure yeah. and, and journal clubs, uh, all the sepsis studies. Um, but what did, what did, in your opinion, these findings show as it relates to early goal-directed therapy? Because um, I think there's two. I think there's two mindsets to, to to kind of approach it as. Yeah. So I mean, I think. Well, first of all, I think it found that it's very hard to do, re, re, you know, repetitions type of studies, right? I mean, you have a, a, a standard of therapy that everyone's doing. And then you're trying to sort of study that standard of therapy again. And the standard of therapy was early goal-directed therapy. Even the Surviving Sepsis campaign came out and said we should be doing it, right? So very hard to do these studies in a, in a systematic manner, knowing that some investigators may not want to be doing this study because they want to put their patients into early goal-directed therapy. But if I had to make one conclusion, first of all, mortality rates decreased mm-hmm. right so oh, and i don't mean between groups overall from annie rivers they were between like 18 percent, and i think the highest was maybe 29 percent in one of the studies so still lower than their early goal directed therapy um and the other is it's uh you know i think if one looks at uh treatment therapies there wasn't any benefit to doing any of the of the therapies uh there wasn't even really any real major treatment differences between groups if you look at fluid administration and things of that nature. And I think the last outcome was the more aggressive you are, the more likely they are to need ICU admission, right? You put a, you put a monitor in there, you start pressors, you have to go to the ICU. So, you know, I think there were three large studies that I don't want to say disproved early goal-directed therapy. I think what they said is we now recognize early goal-directed therapies being used um, it's very hard to do a study with a control group that's supposed to be the old standard of therapy um, when everyone's going to do early goal-directed therapy. Yeah, it's, you know, I, this is basically what you were saying. Our usual care got better. It's not that early goal-directed therapy is ineffective or wrong or bury it. And so um, I kind of wanted to be sure that that was emphasized as well as when we talked about in the beginning, like of how, of how important this trial was, how it's the, the framework for how we treat sepsis now. And even though we might not use all these components, right, still really, still really important. And we saw it in those three studies. Yeah. And I think, uh, thanks for clarifying what I meant by we're still using early goal directed therapy is that we're giving fluids, recognizing early, we're not using the components. We're not doing the SCVO2s and CVPs and hematocrit greater than 30%. Those are not things we do anymore. But it was clear that the fluid administration from the early goal-directed therapy study, the Manny Rivers study, influenced how we treated patients in all these three studies. So the most recent iteration of those surviving sepsis campaign guidelines was 2021. So do any of the components of this, but are there any of those things that are recommended in our most up-to-date iteration of our guidelines? So I think probably the two things, well, three things, maybe early recognition, right? We know that early recognition is hard to say that we actually needed a study to prove that to us or show that to us. But yes, early recognition, get fluids, right? And I think the way the surviving sepsis campaign is, they said, what's the average amount of fluid that these patients needed? 
They got 30 mils per kilo. That's what we're going to give. They said over three hours, even though the study was over six hours, we'll do it over three hours. Let's be a little more aggressive. Um, and then uh, probably monitoring. Really, those are like, you know, get lactate down. Get your other surrogate markers that are, 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 are or your real clinical markers, like MAP up above 65, you know, urine output, things of that nature. So um, we're not using any of the other components of early goal-directed therapy. But we still use bundled care in our sepsis, oh. right? We're still giving those fluids. We're trying to give those antibiotics. If our lactate's up, we're repeating it. We're giving like all those things. So the idea of the bundle, right, that was revolutionary at the time, you know, it's embedded in what we do now, right? Yeah. It's just, it's, we don't necessarily think of it as a bundle, probably. We just do yeah, it so much. I think you hit the nail on the head. I don't know if we actually call it a bundle anymore. In fact, I th- maybe to some degree we're getting away from that because we want people to be independent practitioners and be, you know, patient care and not, you know, ICU care. We want to make sure we're treating the patient for what disease state they have. And, um, you know, everyone responds a little bit different. And if someone's map comes up after a liter, great. If it comes up after three liters, that's what they might need, right? But we now know, yeah, I think that's it's ingrained in our practice patterns that patients need antibiotics and fluid up front you know it's it's early recognition so and you know they're not, in the, they're not in the ed for hours upon hours upon hours waiting for uh, the first dose of antibiotic no <laughs> no i mean six hours now right you're getting you're getting cited you're getting citations yeah. if you're if you're doing that that if you're waiting yeah. that long and I, and I think that's probably one of the things this study did is is it did help formulate the surviving sepsis campaign, which also drove some of the governing regulatory bodies, right? Joint commission looks at some of this. And I'm not saying it's all because of early goal-directed therapy in Manny Rivers, but it was certainly the, the impetus for where we got to now. Well, what a, what an awesome, what an awesome discussion talking about kind of both sides of, of, I, I, I would argue the most, the most famous, maybe the most infamous study in critical care, the Rivers Early Goal Directed Therapy Trial. Uh, Rob, living legend, I appreciate you coming on. Um, thank you so much. Uh, your, your expertise, whenever you talk, we all need to listen. So uh, very thankful that you, you came on and got to share some of your perspective on this, uh, on this groundbreaking trial. Hey, Nick, my, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Happy to answer any questions anyone should maybe have. How can they get in touch with you? Uh, probably best just to email. So rob.mclaren at uh, cuanschutz.edu. Awesome. Thanks, Rob. No worries. Wow. Friends, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Uh, big thanks again to Rob, who was just the absolute best. Uh, let me know what you think at Pharmacy to Dose on social media, pharmacy to dose at gmail.com if you want to drop me an email message. And then, of course, the updated website, pharmacy to dose.com. The reference list with the articles we discussed today um, and reference some of those old guidelines, it's in the podcast episode description as well as at pharmacy to dose.com. And until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast. The Critical Care PRN optimizes drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that is critprn.accp.com.
podcast provides general information only does not offer individualized medical or professional healthcare services, including pharmaceutical advice. The contents and materials in the podcast are not intended to be a substitute for inpatient pharmaceutical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Use of the contents and materials on the podcast does not constitute a pharmacist-patient relationship. As a result, the information in and materials linked to this podcast are applied at the user or patient's own risk. Users and patients should consult their physician or personal healthcare professional. Users or patients should not ignore or delay seeking care because of something they heard on this podcast. In case of an emergency, the user or patient should contact their physician, call 911, or go to the nearest medical emergency facility. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guests and should not be interpreted to reflect the official position or policy of ACCP or the Critical Care PRN. ACP and the Critical Care PRN disclaim any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or any other damages, including without limitation, loss of profits arising out of any use of reference to, reliance on, or inability to use the podcast, its contents, and materials.